Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 22. What's in a name? Basil against Eunomius. Now that we are situated with Basil's overall character arc, it's time to dive into the meat of his Trinitarian theology. And we're going to start off with a familiar genre to us by now, the polemical treatise. In particular, we're starting off with a work that is called Against Eunomius. It's called that because, and I know this will shock you, it is a book of arguments all against Eunomius of Sisychus. Now, we first encountered this heretic all the way back in the 350s as one of the representatives of the Heterousian school, also referred to as the Anomians. Eunomius continues to be a very big deal throughout the 360s. He functions as something of a final boss for those sympathetic to Nicaea, and in particular, he wrote a work called The Apology that became a rallying cry for Heterousians everywhere. It was their signature work of theology. Now, it's important to remember that in this time period, apology does not mean saying you are sorry. Although many later Orthodox thinkers probably made the joke that Eunomius was saying sorry for how terrible his theology was. But that's an anachronism. An apology is a defense. And in this work, Eunomius was laying out the reasons why he believed what he believed. It was a defense of the heterousian school of thought. Now, as we have already seen, Basil is terribly concerned to put Nicaea on firmer ground, so it's not really a surprise that he dedicates a treatise to refuting Eunomius, and particularly to refuting his apology. Now, the work starts off in pretty traditional form for this sort of a thing, with Basil going off about how impious and arrogant Eunomius is. I'm going to skip most of the details here, because while they are kind of entertaining, they aren't terribly important for our understanding of the Trinity. However, there are a few lines in here that tell us something terribly important about the debates going on over what constituted orthodoxy. Basil makes it clear from the outset that his problem with Eunomius isn't just that he is wrong, it's that he is arrogant and deceptive. Eunomius's arrogance in particular really sets Basil off. Basil quotes a section of Eunomius' apology in which Eunomius says that we shouldn't decide what is true based on the majority opinion, or by who has the most power, or by the opinions of past worthies. Now, to many of us, that may sound like a pretty reasonable thing to say. After all, truth is truth, no matter who believes it or doesn't. But Basil will have absolutely none of it. He responds in blistering prose, and I quote, What are you saying? that we should not give more attention to those who have gone before? That we should not respect the multitude of those who are currently Christians and those who have been Christians from the time the gospel was first proclaimed? That we should not consider the honor of those enlightened with manifold spiritual gifts? Or should each of us do this, Eunomius? Shut the eyes of our soul once and for all, banish from our mind the memory of every saint, and then each of us take his own heart now empty and swept clean, and handed over to your misleading and sophistical arguments. End quote. This 
is a fascinating little argument, and there are at least two components to it. The first is that Basil is making an appeal to something we would now call Catholicity. I haven't used the term Catholicity much on this podcast, in part because nowadays people are likely to think you are talking about Roman Catholicism. But that's not true. The word Catholic just means universal. When Basil says that we need to pay attention to what most Christians have believed since the beginning, he is appealing to Catholicity, in other words, to universality. The majority of Christians have treated Jesus as divine, and as the Father's equal in divinity, and they've done so since the beginning. Now, of course, there's any number of reasons that could be, but the most likely explanation is because it's what the apostles actually handed down, right? Everybody believed it because that's what the apostles told them. Ergo, it's likely to be the truer position. So that's the first component of this argument, but there's also a second one. Basil doesn't just want us to consider what most Christians believed. He especially wants us to consider the testimony of the saints. The saints are especially close to God by definition, so wouldn't they be more likely to hold correct beliefs about divinity? Now, since Basil thinks the saints agree with his position, then he's going to say it's more likely that mine is the truer account. Both of these are fairly straightforward arguments, but as is so often the case, the most interesting part of this argument lies not in what Basil says, but in what he assumes without question. Basil is telling us that good theology is not just a matter of reasoning and reflecting. It is a matter of experience. Eunomius is taking up the position that every good philosophy student learns in Logic 101. You don't attack the person making the argument, because the argument can be good even if the person making it is bad. For example, just because Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler believed the world was round, that's not a good reason for thinking the world is flat. You focus on the merits of the logic behind the argument itself. Now, Basil is, of course, also a student of philosophy. He knows that that may be all well and good when we are talking about purely abstract issues of logic, or things that are within the bounds of human comprehension. But God, by definition, exceeds our capacities to comprehend. So relying purely on human logic, on what seems like the strongest case to us, well, that could be a very bad idea indeed. You also need to take into account the lives and experiences of those who have known God, who have been close to God, primarily the saints, but also the multitudes of ordinary faithful people who have turned to God for help and comfort throughout their lives. Just as we might expect a biographer to sit down and interview their subject before writing about them, so too the theologian should experience God and talk with others who have experienced God before writing about God. Basil's monasticism is showing here. Of course, monks weren't the only ones to make this argument, but monks were the only ones who set everything else aside to go into the desert and spend a life communing with God. Their self-denial resulted in tales of wondrous powers and deep insights into human spirits and divine nature itself. Now, Basil lived a more active life than those monks, but he respected their relentless emphasis on ascetical practice and holiness. What Basil is saying is that only holiness can guarantee a clear vision of God. Those of us still on the path 
should very much take heed of those further along it. So, Eunomius is bad and wrong because he doesn't understand the importance of tradition and of ascetical progress in the theological quest. He is also wrong because he takes the words of the fathers and twists them. What Basil means is that Eunomius takes a simple, innocuous creed, one of the things that got passed down in many different rules of faith, and winds up interpreting it until it means something entirely different. And Basil makes another very interesting statement here. He says that there are all sorts of things that past worthy Christians had said, quote, innocently or innocuously. In other words, Basil is saying they made sort of off-the-cuff remarks that were never intended to become theological dogma. What Eunomius has done is take those statements and run with them while ignoring the larger context that militates against his interpretations. What's so interesting to me about this is that Basil is basically admitting that there is evidence in Christian texts for Eunomius' position. I mean, it's certainly the case with Origen, who, as we have seen, can both talk about the words co-eternality with the Father, while also emphasizing a really strict subordination. It's also true in St. Paul, who glorifies Christ, but always carefully distinguishes him from the Father. So Basil knows that it's not going to be enough to just appeal to a Catholic tradition, as if nobody has ever said anything remotely like the radical anomianism of Eunomius. The reason Eunomius' thought is so powerful is precisely because they have. Well, and also probably because it's just very fun to say, you know, the anomian Eunomius. It just kind of rolls off the tongue. But in the face of that theological and syllabic power, Basil points out that the fathers in faith spoke with various degrees of seriousness, let's say. We should weigh their public preaching more heavily than their off-the-cuff remarks when we're trying to determine what to follow. Okay, with that out of the way, we've pretty much set up the terms on which the two will debate. Or, rather, the terms on which Basil will be yelling at Eunomius, because even though Basil quotes his opponent a lot, Basil always has the last word. They weren't really on great terms, so they weren't going to sit down and co-write one of those books where one of them would write a chapter and then another one would write a, a response to that chapter and then you'd get a response to the response of that chapter. It's a nice book. I don't know if Basil and Eunomius would have ever stopped writing it, though. Too many arguments. Yeah, anyway, not the point. Let's begin with the core of Eunomius's argument, which is a slightly expanded version of the summary that we gave back in our episode on the era of too many theologies. Here is the basic idea. The Father is very clearly unbegotten. Everybody agrees with this. The Father is what gives rise to all other existent beings. So if the Father had something that was the cause of his existence, that would be pretty silly. So, the Father is unbegotten. Now, Eunomius asks, when we praise the Father, is it appropriate to praise him only with our conceptions about him, or to praise him as he really is? Eunomius is here going back to the fundamental purpose of the church and the fundamental purpose of worship, to praise God appropriately. Now, as you might guess, the answer is, well, of course it's better to praise God as he really is. Human conceptions are super lame. Our brains are tiny compared to God. And look at all the silly conceptions we have. Some people still believe that the world is flat. Others of us get scared when someone calls us without texting first. 
Others hate mint chocolate chip ice cream. Still others, tragically, do not realize that red pandas are the very best of all the animals. We have all these silly, silly conceptions. And projecting them onto God won't do. No, not at all. So when we are praising God as unbegotten, we are praising God as he is, and not merely how we conceive him. We are saying something about what God is, in other words, about God's substance. Now, if the divine substance, or usia, is unbegotten, then by definition the Son can't share the divine essence. The Son is begotten, so he can't have an unbegotten usia. That would be contradictory. Such is Eunomius' argument as Basil reports it. We'll be hearing more from Eunomius himself in another episode, but for now let's just turn to Basil's evaluation of it. Because as far as Basil is concerned, if you overlook the fact that this argument is completely stupid and doesn't work at all, it's pretty good. But Basil, trained philosopher that he is, is not willing to overlook its stupidity. He gives several reasons why it's so stupid, and I'm now going to cover those briefly. Reason number one. Eunomius is creating a false dichotomy between conception and reality. It is, of course, entirely true that people form wrong conceptions. They do it all the time. But they also form conceptions that are accurate. That's how we understand the natural world and acquire languages and do all sorts of other amazing things. We don't have to penetrate to the nature of the divine substance to have an accurate conception. We just have to find a conception that says something true about God, usually through analogy. After all, that's what Jesus did in his preaching. When Jesus called himself bread, he wasn't saying that God's body is glutinous, or that God is best consumed with a hefty slice of hot butter and maybe a drizzle or two of honey. No, Jesus was saying that God is what nourishes the soul. Ditto with all the other terms Jesus used for himself light of the world, living vine, etc. The concepts we form of God may not tell us very much about the nature of God, but they do tell us something true about God and something terribly important. So why should terms like unbegotten be any different? Eunomius' mistake is to take one name, one concept like unbegotten, and elevate it above all the other concepts as the truest and most accurate picture of God we can possibly have. Indeed, for Basil, unbegotten is just one example of a whole class of terms that apply to God more by negation than anything else. When we call God unbegotten, after all, look at the word. It's a negative term. So we're not claiming to have understood the mystery of the divine substance. We're just saying that we've looked around and realized that, hey, looks like there's no begetter before the Father. Ditto with eternity. We are just saying that God is not bound by time in the same way we are or incorruptible. What does that mean? Only that God doesn't grow old and die like we do. None of these terms tell us what God is. They're just ways of describing what God isn't. The distinction that Basil makes here will eventually grow into a whole style of theology called apophatic theology, but that is a ways off in the story, and if I start talking about it, I'm, I'm never going to stop. So we best just move on. What Basil has done is give us an alternative to Eunomius' way of thinking about how we describe God. But of course, that alone is not enough. Basil also has to convince us that his way of speaking is better than Eunomius's. 
So, Basil argues that eunomian logic leads to absurd conclusions. Because we can take out the word unbegotten and substitute any other description of God in his logic. So, by the same token, we will have to say that just like unbegotten is the name of God's substance, so is God's creative power, or God's wisdom, or God's providence. And if all of those are the name of the divine substance itself, that's going to get very awkward for Eunomius, because now he has to say that God's wisdom is the exact same thing as God's creative power, which is also the same thing as God's providence, which is also the same thing as God's favorite TV show. Okay, I made up that last example, but you get the point. Basil is saying, look, the way Eunomius talks about God violates basic logic and all common sense so you should stick with my understanding of language instead. Now, interestingly enough, some later theologians will make precisely the claim that Basil derides here, that God's wisdom, love, power, etc. are all identical in some deep way. This is the doctrine of divine simplicity. They are not heterousians like Eunomius, in fact, many of them have become pillars of orthodoxy, but this idea will have more legs than Basil gives it credit for. With these two arguments, Basil is ready to make his next move. Not only is Eunomius' account of language ridiculous, but it is colossally arrogant. For Eunomius is saying that he has discovered the true mystery of God's substance. God is unbegottenness, pure and simple. For Basil, only the prideful could ever think that they had fathomed the mysteries of God's being. Where could he have gotten that truth? Well, definitely not from looking at creation. Creation will tell us there's a God, but not what God is like. Did he find it in the Bible or from some special inspiration of the Spirit? Well, David and Paul were both pretty inspired dudes, and they wrote in the Bible about how they couldn't possibly comprehend God. Psalm 138, verse 6 for David, and Romans chapter 11, verse 33 for St. Paul. And Jesus says that nobody knows the Father except the Son in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. Eunomius is attempting to pry into mysteries that no mere mortal is fit to know, and that is why he is falling into heresy. Instead, Basil says, we should be content with the plurality of names we have been given for God, trusting each of them to give us some facet of God's character. Taken together, all those names will give us a well-rounded picture of God without revealing the mysteries of his inner being. Dropped into the middle of all this talk of divine mysteriousness is a brilliant gem of logical clarity that would be really easy to overlook. Basil gives a simple formula to answer the question of how exactly there is only one God when Father, Son, and Spirit are three persons. To wit, the unity of substance means that anything we say of the Father's substance must be true of the Son's and vice versa. So, for example, if we name the Father as light, then the Son is also light. If the Son is the living bread, then so is the Father. Or as Basil says, quote, Hence, while there is a difference in number and in the distinctive features that characterize each, their unity is observed in the formula of the divinity, end quote. In other words, the oneness of the Trinity comes from the fact that they are so intimately related that whatever is true of the being of one must be true of the being of the other two. Underlying this account 
is a sophisticated theory of how being and individuality works. This understanding has a very long and important pedigree that would take me way too long to explain, so just know that Basil is drawing from Aristotle, Neoplatonism, Stoicism, and a whole bunch of other extremely smart people. Here is the basic idea. At the kind of generic level of being, there is a substance, or in Greek, ousia, that all members of a species share. For humans, that basic substance is, well, it's humanity. Now, that substance is not a separate, distinctive thing that you can see out in the world. I don't go out for my morning walk and find the concept of humanity out for a stroll. Humanity is an idea that is real, but it doesn't exist apart from individual humans. To get from that generic level of humanity to an individual human being, you take that usia, that substance, and you add on individuating properties that make us who we are. So I am Ben, by virtue of being born when I was, to the parents that I have, with the particular genetic makeup that I have, with the particular friendships that I have, and so on and so on and so on. Just so with the Trinity. They all have the divine substance and are only differentiated by their properties, namely their relationships. The Father generates the Son. The Son is generated by the Father. That's it. That's the only difference. Now, there are some accounts of the Trinity that tend to push the oneness of God so hard that it's difficult to explain how the Father, Son, and Spirit can be real persons. That's the modalistic error everybody is so terrified of in this time period. Others emphasize the distinctness of the three so much that they start to lose sight of the one. I suspect that Basil's account tends toward this latter error. He has begun to speak of divine substance as a class to which these three persons belong as members. And there's nothing particularly mysterious about this formula. I mean, we can apply it to all kinds of things. Take three red pandas. Based on what we know of the substance of one red panda, we can apply it to the other two. If we know that one red panda has a striking red coat, so will the other two. If it also has an impressively floofy tail that allows it to balance on the forest heights, so will the other two. Ditto for its solitary nature, an eminently boopable snoot. And of course, each red panda will also have its distinguishing features. One might like apple slices for its favorite snack, while another might prefer grapes. But they all have the same substance of red panda-ness. Now, the description I have just given you is formally identical to Basil's. It can explain the multiplicity of red pandas quite well, what it can't do is explain how they are one in any meaningful way. We seem to have three beings, which would be fine if Christians weren't committed to the Jewish tradition of monotheism. But they are, and so in my opinion, it seems like Basil has a bit of trouble getting out of this. The problem I am describing here is actually so well known that it has its own name in the field. It's called the Generic Account of Divine Unity. It's a matter of considerable scholarly debate whether Basil, or the two Gregories for that matter, bought into this generic account. Those who argue in the negative will give you several reasons why. After all, Basil says the divine substance is different from all other substances. In fact, it's unknowable. So maybe it creates a deeper level of unity among its members than, say, red panda-ness does among its members. 
Others argue, and this to me is the more persuasive argument, that Basil is not attempting to apply this taxonomic system of classification by Usia in a one-to-one -one manner to God. He's really just giving us an analogy for how the oneness in God operates. What is one in God? It's all the things the Father, Son, and Spirit share. Glory, power, light, goodness, love, mercy, justice, etc. Those properties play the same role that usia or substance play for created things. So in this way, Basil isn't so much interested in the numerical question of how the three can be one. Instead, he's trying to describe the unique interplay of sameness and difference in God. Go back to the example of light that Basil used earlier, which is actually one of his favorite examples. Say you have light that shines from two identical sources. Can you tell those two lights apart? No. Are there any differences in brightness, intensity, or color? No. Now, if I told you that one light source was begotten and the other was unbegotten, what would that mean? Only that some light was begotten and the rest was unbegotten. What would that change about the unity of the light? Not really very much at all. I personally find his analogy of the lights to be more helpful than the analogies he's drawing through the category of substance, but I will let you decide what you make of this problem of the generic account, and don't worry, because it will come up again in the story. Possible difficulties in his pithy formulas aside, you might think Basil has had Eunomius for breakfast and is about to wrap up this whole treatise. But you could not be more wrong. What we have seen so far is in fact a mere appetizer compared to the smorgasbord of heretical refutations ahead as Basil turns his attention to Eunomius's doctrine of the sun. The primary bone of contention surrounds the names that Eunomius attempts to attach to the second person of the Trinity. In particular, he really likes to call the Son something begotten. This is actually a rather clever move from Eunomius. He notes that the Father is the begetter and the Son is begotten. He then Athanasius's old argument and uses it against him. If similarities in names imply similar substances, well then difference in names imply differences in substances. So if the Father and Son have different names, they must be different in being. But Basil is having absolutely none of it. Going back to his old analogy of species of a class, he points out that humans all have different names. There's Peter and Paul and James and Basil and Gregory. But we all have the same substance, humanity. It's Basil's Garth Brooks moment when he recognizes that there's only one race, and that's mankind. The Road to Nasia now brought to you by those inspirational billboards that you see scattered around your highway. Remember, there's only one race, and that's mankind. Well, and, and, and womankind. And I guess non-binary folk kind, too. You know, it's really kind of odd that in a message that's supposed to be so unifying, instead of using a nice generic term like humanity, they use a bunch of gendered language that forces us to take that one and name it as three. Oh. Well, shoot. Maybe the road to Nicaea really is brought to you by country music. But Basil is at his best when he is arguing with Eunomius on biblical grounds. Because Basil knows that the name Something Begotten is cooked up by Eunomius. Jesus is never called that in the Bible. Or as Basil delightfully puts it, and I quote, For a child is begotten to us, and a son is given to us, and his name is called 
not something begotten, but the angel of great counsel. Furthermore, Peter did not say, you are something begotten, but rather you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And no passage can be found in which Paul, who filled all his writings with the designation Son, mentions something begotten. The very term which Eunomius proposes with great boldness, as if he took it from the divine instruction. Now, if you are sympathetic to Eunomius, you might be sitting there thinking, Okay, wise guy, yeah, the Bible never calls him something begotten, but the Bible does say he was begotten by the Father, and if that's the case, then he is something begotten by definition. What is there to be so mad about? To which Basil would reply, many things. Specifically because, and I quote, It is a dreadful thing for us to address him by one of our own names, when God has bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Therefore, whoever keeps before his eyes the tribunal of Christ, and sees how dangerous it is to subtract from or add anything to what the Spirit handed down, should not endeavor to innovate on his own, but acquiesce to what the saints announced beforehand. End quote. In other words, Basil doesn't think we should make a habit of adding names to God beyond those revealed in the scriptures, even if those names seem like logical consequences of what the Bible says. Because after all, God's being is incomprehensible to us, which means we cannot be certain that divine being works the way human being does. And so what might be true of human beings might not be true of God. This point can be a little abstract, but I think Basil is saying something like this. If I know what the English words standing and under mean, I can put them together and say that I am standing under a bridge, which is a perfectly logical and intelligible thing to say. But let's say I want to get creative, and I know that in other languages like Latin and Greek, the order of words in a sentence doesn't actually matter that much, typically. And I decide I want to do the same thing in English, not really knowing how our grammar works, so instead, I say that I am understanding a bridge. And in saying that, I have completely changed the meaning and connotations of my sentence without realizing it. And this is precisely the way of things with the term something begotten. Because as Basil will point out, the Greek term for something begotten is actually used in the Bible, but it's only ever used as a pejorative term. So why on earth would we use a term of insult for our Savior? We wouldn't, Basil says, unless we were a mean old heretic like Eunomius. If we are faithful Christians, then we wouldn't say such nonsense. We would hold that the names don't actually reveal anything about the unknowable divine essence. Instead, the names we are given denote the distinguishing marks of each person of the Trinity. What makes the Father, Father, rather than Son, the Son, the Son, rather than the Father or Spirit, and so on and so on. Now, if you have been following this podcast for any length of time, it will not surprise you to learn that Basil is not content to rest with only one argument about how dumb Eunomius is. In some ways, most theological arguments of any era boil down to a bunch of people making one satisfactory argument, then pausing for a minute, and then saying, and another thing, and just continuing. Basil wants to go even further in his argument and say that Eunomius' whole position results in absurd conclusions. In particular, the idea that the Son's essence, the very mystery of his being, could be pure begottenness, 
that that could be the name of the sun's essence, the way humanness is the name of ours, is going to lead to some very foolish conclusions. Because what else is begotten? Well, all of creation. In which case, all of creation actually has the same essence, which is begottenness. Lions, tigers, bears, the number five, the faint feeling of wonder, longing, and pain that you get when someone wears a perfume that reminds you of your high school crush. Humans and lizards and tadpoles, we are all actually the same kind of thing. The Road to Nicaea, brought to you when there's just one race, and that's everything. Absolutely everything. Basil rightly thinks this is an absurd conclusion to reach, and when your logic causes you to reach absurd conclusions, you should rethink your premises. After this, Basil goes on to rehash some of the arguments we've already seen in the controversy, particularly about whether there was a time when the sun was not. I'm going to skip all of that, since this episode is too long already, and we've covered those arguments already, so there really isn't a lot of rhetorical innovation going on at this later stage in the controversy. However, as Basil rehearses the litany of ills that Eunomius has wrought, his indignation is constantly increasing. He starts tossing in fun little asides like, I don't know which of these two statements I should be more enraged by, or I can't imagine that these men would ever contradict me unless they have been reduced to manifest delirium. You get the sense that Basil is building up to something, and indeed he is. For at the very end of this section, he describes Eunomius's capital offense, claiming that there is distance and difference between the unbegotten and the begotten. I'll let Basil's outrage speak for itself, and I quote, How far apart is the begotten from the unbegotten? Is it just a little bit, and just enough so that they will sometimes be able to come together at the same point? Or is this utterly unfeasible? and even more impossible than the same person being alive and dead at the same instant, since Eunomius thinks that the begotten is opposed to the unbegotten, that they are contraries. He holds that the substance of the Father is antagonistic and hostile to that of the only begotten. End quote. Basil is furious at the mere thought of this. Here, Basil says, we see Eunomius's true intentions laid bare. He doesn't want to protect the Father's divinity. He is not interested in explicating the Son's nature. He wants to eject the Son from the Godhead and tarnish his name by calling him the first of creatures instead of second in the Trinity. And of course, Basil was in the majority opinion on this count. Eunomius and his radical Anomian followers were never particularly popular precisely because they so emphasized the differences between Father and Son that even most Homoians and Homoousians were scandalized. It went against the general sense of the church. It went against the piety of most Christians. And it went against the common linguistic trope that sons, on the whole, were an awful lot like their fathers. So ends the second part of Basil's treatise, with a thunderous denunciation of the worst excesses of Eunomian theology. The book does not end there, however, for Eunomius's blasphemies did not end there. Basil devotes a small final section of this work against Eunomius to the Holy Spirit. But although Basil's treatise continues on, we are going to have to stop for this week. Because after all, we are getting pretty close to time, and there just isn't a ton of meat to Basil's account. He doesn't tell us all that much about the Spirit in this treatise. 
Of course, neglecting the poor Holy Spirit is par for the course in the controversy so far. But Basil will actually break this trend. He is one of the very first thinkers to devote a full treatise to the nature of the Holy Spirit. And we will return to that treatise next time as we consider not the Father, nor the Son, but an all-too-secret third Trinitarian person next time on our journey along the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.